Appalachia is a 200,000 square mile region that encompasses most of the East Coast and includes parts or all of 12 other states, including states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Appalachia is home to some of the best writers and publishers in the United States. This program seeks to profile those authors and publishers and talk about how Appalachia influences and impacts their work. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile and bring you some of the great writers and publishers who are writing from, about, and regarding Appalachia. And we are delighted to have uh, another outstanding author with us today on Now Appalachia to talk to us about his latest collection of essays, Meander Belt. And our guest today is Randall O'Wayne. And Randall O'Wayne joins us after earning his MFA from the University of Iowa's nonfiction writing program. He's an assistant teaching professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and also serves as a National Endowment of the Arts Writing Fellow at the Beckley Federal Correctional Institution. He is the author of the short story collection, Hallelujah Station, and his work has been published in Oxford American, Hotel America, Crazy Horse, and Guernica Magazine. And it's my pleasure to welcome Randall O'Wayne to Now Appalachia. Randall, good to have you here, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no, no, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here, yeah. I, I, am, I loved your collection of essays, and there's so much here to unpack. I can't wait to, to talk to you about this, um, because I think what you're writing about in these essays for people who are from or have spent significant time in Appalachia can identify with a lot of what you're writing about. But I wanted to ask you first about a central relationship that exists through these essays. All of your essays are kind of distinct in their own way, but they're also connected uh, by a common thread. But as we get into your essay collection, we learn about the relationship that you had with your father. And yeah. at times it was a tenuous relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about that, sort of who your father was and what that relationship was like? Because we see it play out a lot in these essays. Yeah, uh, my father, first of all, was a carpenter. Uh, his grandfather was a migrant picker, you know, and, and his, and his uh, grandfather's father was the same. Um, he came from rural Arkansas and Paragould, Arkansas, and uh, worked very, very hard to try to get his family um, into the working middle class. Um, he was, by nature, a provider. Um, and a hard worker so then what that means for growing up is that he was also uh absent a lot working a lot and and a lot and in the way that a lot of uh men are raised to be uh he was quiet about his his feelings he was funny you know and he would joke around with us and, and uh pick us up and like scratch my neck with his beard, you know, and tickle me. You know, he's a good, funny guy, but you never really knew where he, where you stood necessarily with him, you know? And, and I was always 
I was a sensitive kid. I was, uh, you know, my, my older brother idealized him to the point where he dressed like him and, and he, and he, and he, and he got into the same kind of work that he did and, and held his body in the same way. And my interest with my father was always trying to kind of understand him. I don't know how to say it really, but like emotionally, you know, trying, like, even when I was a little kid, I was always trying to find the cracks, you know, to try to get closer to him as a, as who he was inside, as opposed to just who he was as the disciplinarian and, and the provider. Um, and I think that there were, well, one of the, one of the things I always think about when I think about this book is a photograph that I have. Um, and it's, uh, it's not in the book, they make it in the book, but it's my family before my little sister was born. And uh, I'm perhaps two years old and I'm pulling away from my older sister and she's wearing this awful, like hot pink jumpsuit. It's the eighties, you know, with the scrunchy waist and my mom is next to her and my older brother's holding onto my dad's um, legs. And my dad is wearing these short shorts that are so short, the hems of his pockets stick out below the cutoff area. You know what I mean? And he's leaned back and he's smoking a joint and he's smiling really big and he's got this long hair and, and beard, you know? And, uh, and I think about that photo, for two reasons. Um, one, I feel like it just, it, it captures him when he is youthful, when he was youthful, as he could be throughout. But I also know who took the photo. And the man who took the photo was uh, somebody I write about in the, in the essay, Arrow of Light, Jimmy, which was his best, his best friend. And um, Jimmy will uh, commit suicide when, when I'm nine years old, you know. But in that moment, my father's hamming it up. For Jimmy you know like that's why he's leaned back smoking a joint and, and smiling really big um, and when Jimmy commits suicide it completely alters the fabric of who my father was it, it really really changes him and he had to take me uh, to the scene of the of the suicide um, it was either that or leave me at the church where I was at a Weeblo meeting uh, for however many hours it would take for him to go identify the body a and hide cocaine uh, that had been in Jimmy's truck, B. And so he took me there and, and told me to stay in the truck. And of course I didn't stay in the truck because what kid stays in the truck? And I watch him and, and I watch him uh, deal with this situation or watch him hide the drugs or take the drugs inside. And, and then I watch him um, gather viscera from the truck. And a couple of days later, uh, he takes my brother and I out into the woods and he has this private ceremony with us. Um, and I can remember in the moment when he is driving me away from the scene of Jimmy's suicide and he's, he's trying not to cry in front of me, I wanted so badly to be like his best friend in that moment. And I remember saying, I wanted to come. <laughs> I wanted to be here, you know, but I don't know what that means. You know, what nine-year-old knows what that means. Um, so I'm, I'm spending a long time answering this question, but I just wanted to kind of put the fact that my father and I did have a very intimate relationship as well as a strained one. Um, and I think, he, and he picked up on that too, um, the fact that I was kind of emotionally attuned and then that caused him, or it did eventually cause our relationship to, to kind of change. And throughout my teenage years, it sort of meant that he trusted me a little bit more than he did my other siblings. 
and and it also meant that I could kind of run circles around him at some point, you know. And so I left home as as in, as the essay at sixteen. This was a moment of giant strain, and then I left home again, uh, more permanently at nineteen. And this was a giant strain. But the biggest strain that came between us was the fact that um, I was a sensitive boy, um, you know, feminine, and and by by most. Uh, Southern uh, masculinity standards. Um, and I loved reading and I loved writing and I loved playing music and I could care less about carpentry or cars, you know? And so then nobody else in my family had those desires um, that, that I knew of anyway. Um, and I felt um, that I needed to find it elsewhere. You know, um, and so then I then I started seeking elsewhere, and he knew that that's what I was doing, and of course it hurt him. The the further I went, so when I when I leave home, I'm leaving on this search, uh, in a sense, for more books, for more art, for more music, um, which is which is then moving much further away from um, labor as as uh, as power and not intelligence or education as power. You know, um, and so we became at odds, and and it, and it really had to do with the fact that I was going to be what I am now, and he could see it, and I think it scared the shit out of him. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things you we see a lot uh, in in your essay collection too, as you mentioned, also is how you you come to fall in love with language, with reading, with writing, um, and really kind of the world outside of the American South, you know, wanting to see, you know, outside of the parameters in which you grew up. Was there a moment, you know, in your teenage years or somewhere growing up where you realized this was the path you wanted to pursue? Was there a certain experience, something you read, something you had published uh, where you thought, you know, th th this is definitely the track I'm going to take and I'm not going to be in carpentry and I'm not going to do manual labor uh, like my father and like so many other men. Um, in Appalachia have done uh, over the decades and even the centuries. Um, was there like a seminal moment when you realized this is the path I'm going to pursue? Was there an experience or something that happened that helped you determine that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and travel was it, you know, like I travel was this thing that I felt like I could control. Um, I had, I had control over it. And I do think, I mean, I always had this pretty wild fantasy life when I was a kid, you know, um, it wasn't that I was necessarily escaping anything, but, but I love to just kind of like reform these fantasies for hours and hours at a time until they were perfected. And they always had to do with adulthood, even starting when I was like seven or eight years old. And then, you know, it was like, oh, I, I could be free to, you know, go to the circus and, and meet, you know, vampire bikers, like the Lost Boys movie, you know, or, um, I could, uh, you know, walk down the train tracks in search of a dead body, like stand by me. So there were these definite, or, or I just had to get underground to the, to the sewage system, like the Goonies, and I'd find a pirate ship with a, a bunch of gold. So there was, I think I was really influenced by, by movies. Um, but this thing happened to me that, it, that is, that I, that I thought about only after writing the book, but I dropped out of school, uh, before I was even 15 years old. Um, and after that, those fantasies became to, f they didn't feel good anymore because now they were tied with shame. They were tied with the shame of having 
um, left a very common pursuit, right? Uh, in fact, like a right in this country, you know, to go to school and, and everything else. And I'd, and, I'd, and I'd lost that thread, you know, or I'd lost that path. And so I would have these fantasies of traveling or, or I loved playing music or playing music. And, and because of the, sh the shame that had been introduced, I had to do it. I had to pursue the fantasy life as opposed to just letting it exist in my imagination. And so then it started feeling like, well, I want to play music. And so I taught myself how to play the guitar. And, and my first tour was when I was 16 years old. Um, or, when, or I wanted to, to travel. And as readers will see in the book, I, I do at 16, I travel to Montreal, Canada. And it was all based on these visions that it was going to be incredible, <laughs> you know, uh, that it was going to be so fun and so fantastic. And just at the other end of the rainbow, I was going to find some greater version of myself, you know. And so then I kept pursuing it. But, but travel did feel I could work washing dishes for 50 or 60 hours a week, save $650 or something like that and live meagerly for months you know, um, as long as I was out on the road. And there was this freedom uh, that, that existed in that because that movement felt like I was doing something grand. Um, and it did, it did lead me here uh, to talking with you, you know, and, um, and I'm grateful for that because it could have led a bunch of different places. Yeah. And you mentioned travel. I wanted to ask you about one of the essays in your collection, because I think this is really, really interesting and speaks a lot to the Appalachian experience, too. You have an essay called Rock and Roll High School, and you kind of alluded to it a minute ago, which is about you traveling uh, to Montreal with a friend. Uh, but before you got there, you had a stop in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. And uh, you were staying with uh, some students. I think they were University of Michigan students, if yeah. I remember correctly, on summer break. Um, and this group is presented, as you describe them, as sort of social justice, student hippie kind of um, uh, students, that, students that stereotypically are often portrayed in movies, you know, as we see, for example, a lot of people who uh, don't know anything about college or have never been to college assume that's all the students that are there. It's just that dynamic and that, that demographic. Um, but one of the things that I love that you pointed out, because I think it's so common to all of us in Appalachia, is that uh, when, you, when they found out that you were from Memphis, Tennessee, they started all of the typical um, questions, sort of snide remarks, like they asked if people wore shoes in Memphis, and they asked you if the men wore shirts and all of that kind of thing. And that yeah. just drives me crazy. Yeah. Uh, ha having grown up in West Virginia myself, and we get all that all the time, you know, do you brush your teeth? Do you wear shoes? Um, yeah. <laughs> can you talk about that? And, and but because I, I think you really took a stand in that essay as we <laughs> unfold for for kind of putting those Michigan students in, in line and saying, you know, <laughs> get over yourselves and get over what you think of Appalachia because yes, we wear shoes and yes, we wear shirts and all that. Can, can you talk about that experience? Because it's kind of a culture clash too we see in that essay. Yeah, I, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is I wonder if, um, if the students would act that way now, but I, I bet they do. Um, I wish I could say I was heroic in that moment um, and said fixin' to and y'all louder, you know, but, but instead I remember feeling kind of like beaten down by it, you know, um, and that uh, in order to make um, myself feel more invisible, 
then when I was around those kids, I stopped speaking the way that I spoke. And I think that that's also a common experience, you know, um, that, that, that some people do. I, I do think, and it made me angry then, and we would fight. I remember fighting with those kids quite a bit because the question then is, this is as far as your compassion goes, you know? Like, we all know compassion has limits in some sense, right? But it seems that if you're going to, you know, be animal rights activists and anti-capitalists and, and you know, like um, anti-globalization activists or, all, or environmentalists and all these things, that you could that you could extend that compassion to regions as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that was 1997, and I'd I'd like to think that students are more compassionate towards uh, the regional upbringing <clears throat> of others, but but I'm not sure I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, what I wish would sort of what i wish people would do how they would check themselves more often is to not seek scapegoats or easy answers from uh from from places or or classes that have often already been targets of that kind of criticism because if anything the the past um few years of of uh politics in this country have have shown us is that that boogeyman of the racist misogynistic um homophobic uh man typically um isn't tied to one region or tied to one class in fact what we've learned over these past few years is that they are everywhere you know and that they are as much in california and new york as they are in Ohio or Indiana, right? As, and then in terms of, of the South. Um, one of the things that, that I always think about though, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm probably getting off topic of your question, but is a misreading of the working class identity, a misreading of the laborer's identity. Because my experience with my family of, of labor and family and, and, and working class class is that there isn't much that the attention is given to family and, and survival. It's not about like, there isn't much attention given to global politics or national politics because there's a certain amount of, there's a level of the love is haunted in some sense by the fact that it, that your position, that your home, that your car, that the food you're eating uh, could go away, you know, that it could be lost. And, and it could be lost because the asset is the body, right? And the body can break under those constraints. And so I think that what people often get wrong when they make these, when they follow these stereotypes is to assume um that it's like a an act of will to to or personality choice or lifestyle choice as opposed to an act of survival right mm-hmm. um and so i think that language aside or or cliches of regions aside i just think that it's time that we start 
considering um, those negative stereotypes, especially of like violent men and emotionally terrorizing women and, um, and children hurting children because they are hurt. All of these um, are very, very prevalent in the entire national uh, social system. Um, and then oftentimes the working class families are more family oriented and the goal is to trade family lore and, uh, and, and ways of survival. Like I said, I just feel like the love is haunted um, by this feeling of having the, knowing that the bottom could fall out. Randall Owain is our guest here on Now Appalachia. We're talking with him about his new essay collection, Meander Belt, Family Loss and Coming of Age in the Working Class South. And Randall, I want to ask you a question. I wanted to read a, a small snippet from your preface and then ask you um, about how this impacted your writing process with, these, with this book and um, maybe about writing essays in general. Um, I love what you said at the beginning. You said, uh, I am not, nor have I ever been, much interested in accuracy. I'm interested in verisimilitude. Accuracy is irrefutable fact and does not allow for the messy and difficult emotions that persist within memory. Verisimilitude is the essence of what is true to the human heart. That said, I enjoy constraints. I have refused to collapse my loved ones into composite characters, and I have not knowingly adjusted timelines. How, how did, did that approach uh, impact you putting these essays together into this collection? And, and is that something that people writing essays in general or thinking about writing essays or an essay collection should keep in mind when they're trying to, to uh, put together a collection like this? Yeah, well, there's a lot of arguments about I don't even hear it as much in any other genre, really, but there's a lot of arguments about how to speak, how to write memory. And some believe, a lot believe, that the more um, essayistic style, the style that Montaigne introduced in the 16th century of, of turning memory over, of considering it intellectually and with regards to other cultural milestones or, or contexts, um, is the way that it should be written. And to me, and I tell my students this, uh, that to me seems like an essay that was written above the shoulders. It's entirely in the mind, it's in the brain, and it's, a, and it's an intellectualizing of memory. But for me, these stories, these memories, they were always in my guts, man. They were always in my heart. I felt them in my body. And so it never, um, and I tried to write in the way that is most acceptable, you know, to think through them as opposed to feel through them or inhabit them. Um, but because I, I, I felt them so clearly uh, in my body, I wanted to inhabit them on the page. I wanted to, to bring that, I wanted to bring the body and the landscape and everything uh, alive for for the reader and so the way that was most natural for me was to to kind of use what i know of fiction uh in terms of detail and symbol and uh, i use dialogue freely um and happily and uh and and i and i and and so i do when i tell my students when they have this question i kind of say sometimes you have stories that exist above the shoulders they're conceptual uh, in, a, in a certain way. And then sometimes you have stories that exist in your guts, in your heart, in the body. 
And maybe that's a way of gauging what style to use. Um, and I do, it was really important to me for the reader to really know my father and my brother and to, and to feel what it was like to be near them and with them. Uh, and so that was another reason why I needed to rely more on essential truth as opposed to accurate truth. I'll tell you something that's really interesting though that I didn't, that I didn't know was going to happen. When I first started working on this book, I was very emotionally vulnerable, like all of the time. You know, I would look at photos and read letters and talk to my mother and, and I would cry and I would write and it was, and it was difficult. And then I got a draft done and then I wasn't interacting with memory anymore. I was interacting with the written page. And then I revised again and then I was, one step removed from memory. And then I revised again, and I was that much further removed from memory. And so and it, one of the things I didn't expect was, in essence, I was mining these experiences, and, and, and they did actually end up becoming a finite resource. You know, I, I mined them out and connected them to the book more than I did to my to, to the body, you know? And I didn't realize that it happened until um, I found a letter uh, that I that I had not um, written about or even dealt with in the book at all or even thought about and and it was I was 22 years old and I was living in Oakland and I want to go to to community college um, and maybe some people know this or not but you cannot get financial aid until you're 24 years old um, unless your parents are below the poverty line and so my father had been fired from his job and out of work and so I thought maybe he's below the poverty line. And so I had to call him on the phone. It's a horrible thing to do, uh, to, to have to do to uh, a man like my father. But I had to call him on the phone and I said, do you have proof that you are now below the poverty line? And he said, just let, let, let your mother deal with it. And he got off the phone with me really quick and put me on the phone with my mom. So I found what was just essentially an itemized list of their income uh, for the year that then I used to get financial aid while I went to community college. And I saw that letter and I cried like a grown ass man. I just, I just bawled my eyes out and it felt so beautiful. And I felt so grateful um, that, that I could have that experience, um, that just unrestrained emotional reaction to something that I should feel all of the time you know, when interacting with this material. Um, and, and that's when I realized that I hadn't been having those uh, feelings towards any of the other stuff that I had been writing about because like I said, I'd sort of mined, I'd sort of mined that, that resource. Um, and it does feel like a resource. I think that it's, I think it's very important um, when, and this is another reason why I didn't feel like this book could be an above the shoulders book. I felt like it was very important to be equally as present with that grief. Um, because in essence, I wrote this book so I could get at grief. You know, I didn't, and I didn't want to say, um, I agree, I was grieving and now I am not, right? Or I, I had lost and, and now I am better because I felt really dishonest. Like I, will not 
ever be a person who does not carry this grief. You know, I will always be uh, a person who carries that loss. And so I wanted very much to, to get at that, uh, to get at that loss, to get at that grief without seeking a resolution or, or answers or suggesting how to fix someone else or, you know what I mean? The way that maybe other more traditional memoirs might, you know, um, I wanted it to be impressionistic. Very good. So there's 19 essays in your collection. Which was the hardest to write? The hardest to write. There's a suite in the middle, the Memento Mori suite. Um, and it follows, the first one is the longest essay in the, in the, in the book. It's 69 pages, I think. And, and it follows, and that was the hardest one. It follows a three-year period um, where I didn't, want the, I didn't want the whole book to be taken up with these three years. I, 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 I wish I could have made it even less than 69 pages. Um, but I'm not with my father. Um, I'm living in Olympia, Washington. I have a band. We own a van together and musical equipment. We all live in the same house. A record label has uh, offered to put out our first LP. We have a tour set up. Uh, a two-week tour in the, on the West Coast and then a six-week tour all over the country. And so it's this moment where um, something that I had built like on my own and with others was actually coming to fruition and it was going to, and it was great and, and it was going to be great. And so in a certain sense, there's this ascendancy, ascendancy that's happening in this three-year period before my father dies. And then um, simultaneously, my father is going through a wicked descent, um, beginning first with, um, uh, with mental health, where he, he is experiencing panic attacks, heart attack-like um, panic attacks that are so severe um, that there was actually about a month where he didn't even leave his room. He couldn't go to work, he couldn't really do anything. And they weren't really reg readily di diagnosed then, too. And so then he would go to doctors, and, and doctors would tell this man this man whose sole interest in his life was to be a provider and successful at that, to be a successful parent and a successful husband, that he was making it up somehow. That it was all in his head. And then that just made the panic double down, you know, and, and made it so much worse. Um, and so this is happening with him. Uh, and then he ends up, uh, discs in his neck slip when he's hoisting up uh, a fake or a beam that's made to look like it's a timber-framed beam in a church. Um, and then he can't lift more than 20 pounds anymore. And so he can no longer work. And then we lose the house that I grew up in. And it's just this long, it's this very quick, actually, long list, a short amount of time of tragedy um, uh, with this, with, for one man to, to deal with. And so he was going through that while I was going through this. Um, and I needed to get his parts like I wanted his parts to speak for themselves. I didn't want to filter them through what I was doing, you know? Um, and so I tried inserting interviews. Um, I tried to fall back on um, my skills as an essayist and, and look at photographs or letters or documents in a more essayistic way. And all of it was just terrible. It just was so bad and none of it really worked. And one day, uh, and I felt, I felt like I was not even going to finish the book, really. Like, I felt that that was going to be what broke me. Um, I was trying to write 
him in those sections. And one day I was sitting on the second floor of my house in West Virginia, and it's so dark there at night. It's dark enough where uh, and on a new moon I can see the Milky Way and it's in all its glory. And, um, and, and so if you, if you can imagine that kind of darkness, then you can imagine what it's like to look out of a window, you know, at the pasture land next to it. It's just black expanse. And then I'm watching, trying to just figure out, you know, like what, how to, how to go about this narration. And suddenly, um, I don't know why I started doing it at night, but my neighbor who owns like a, a yearling operation uh, in this large pasture burns his, the brush that he's collected. And it's about the size of a two-story house. And so it collects really fast. And then there's just this two-story house worth of bonfire that's, that's blazing. Um, and that detail doesn't even really matter. I just remember is this is the moment I'm sitting there and suddenly my father's voice, but not in my mind, in his mind, my father's voice narrating him his own life and his own feelings was just there. And I thought, I'll, I'll write it down. You know, I kind of went back and forth like, oh, I can't do that. You know, like that's against the law to write someone's um, POV or get into their head without their permission, but I did it and I wrote about 30 pages of the book, about 30 pages in that first section where it's all just from my father's perspective. Um, we're deep in his, in his mind, we feel when he feels, we fear when he fears, we hurt when he hurts. And I wrote those within like three or four days and I've never changed them. Mm -hmm. They never, they've been tweaked a little bit, sentences here and there, um, but I've never, I've never changed them. So that, that was the hardest part that ended up becoming the strangest part of the book because, and you know, biography does this sometimes too. If you want to write a strong profile, you can do all this research and everything, and then you narrate the events of someone's life. So I don't consider it actually as being fiction in the middle of nonfiction. I actually consider it biography in the middle of memoir. Um, but that was definitely, that, that was, that was definitely the hardest part. And so in our final moments with you today, uh, Randall, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about your writing or to talk to you more about Meanderbelt, um, how can they get in contact with you first of all, and where can they get copies of your book? Yeah, that's great. Um, so my email address is mrandallowain, M-R-A-N-D-A-L-1-L-O-W-A-I-N at gmail.com. And uh, I actually really want as many people who, who can uh, can do it, can afford it to buy books from their local indie bookstores. Um, and if they want to do it online, even there's uh, indiebound.net where you put in your zip code and they find the closest independent bookstore near you and they order from the internet directly through that bookstore. Um, so then we're all helping each other out. Amazon doesn't need our help as much as like a local bookstore does you know so so that's the that's the best way um as far as far as i'm concerned and then i'll be on a pretty large tour um all the way through december um so keeping keeping an, an ear to the ground is that what they say yeah. i think so <laughs> near to the ground that's a very good appalachian expression also they keep keeping <laughs> ear to the ground absolutely well randall owain has been our guest here today on now appalachia we've been talking to him about his latest collection of essays meander belt family loss and coming of age in the working class south it's an outstanding collection of essays and as we said at the beginning at the open 
uh, anybody who has lived or spent time in or has family in or has been involved and connected in Appalachia uh, and the South in any way uh, should pick up a copy of this because they'll find a lot of the themes, uh, as we mentioned, family loss and coming of age in the working class South, uh, very relevant to their experience. It's an outstanding collection, uh, Randall, and congratulations on it. And uh, you. as you keep writing and keep doing other things, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk Absolutely. about it. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. We also want to take a moment as we wrap up this episode of Now Appalachia to thank the executive producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack. And remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. Until next time, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope.